This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, A Best of the Left Activism Update, Comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, The Green News Report, The Progressive, and The Majority Report. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode contains unedited utterances of the term sea level rise. It's likely that you see more TV commercials from energy companies touting their good works than TV news reports taking a hard look at the oil and gas industries. But then you see a report like the one that aired on ABC World News on May 10th, and you wonder if there's much of a difference. The show took a look at the energy boom in the Midwest, which is apparently turning farmers into millionaires. Here's part of anchor Diane Sawyer's setup. New drilling techniques are finding oil in your backyard. ABC's Sharon Alfonsi went to a small town which has just discovered that the pot of gold is under all that wheat. Correspondent Sharon Alfonsi went to talk to farmers who believe they'll soon be making $500,000 a month thanks to, quote, a new drilling technique that finds oil on lands once thought to be sucked dry, close quote. What does that mean? ABC doesn't say, but the web version of that story spells it out. It's horizontal fracturing, or fracking, the highly controversial practice of blasting water and chemicals down into the rock, which creates all manner of health and environmental problems. Well, ABC skips that angle altogether because the point is that we're all going to be rich. And it's not just Kansas. Take a look. I'm going to show you this map. These are some of the areas where that new drilling technology is actually unlocking oil. You can see, Diane, it's all over the country, from North Dakota to Pennsylvania. And by some estimates, there are 2 trillion barrels of oil in our backyards. That's twice the reserves that are in the Mideast and in North Africa combined, in our backyard. In our backyard. Hope it's in your backyard. Go online to look at that map and study exactly what the surveys show now. Money right there in your backyard. What's not to like about that? Of course, there's another elephant in the room when we talk about massive new sources of carbon, catastrophic climate change. ABC is excited about the money to be made in extracting all that oil, and any concerns one might have about the future of the planet might put a damper on all that enthusiasm. Better than not to talk about it. That was ABC's approach, and that's also what Time Magazine did in its May 21st report on the bright fracking future. The happy talk is all about natural gas, not oil, but this type of gas exploration makes a powerful contribution to global warming in the form of methane gas released into the atmosphere. Time doesn't spend much time worrying about the environmental impact of fracking. Some stray references to environmental concerns will do. The fact that the piece is headlined, The Golden Age, tells you that, just like with ABC, the news here is good. It makes you wonder, do journalists covering energy issues imagine that they and their loved ones are going to be living on another planet in the not-too-distant future? It's the land, it is our wisdom, it's the land that shines us through. It's the land, it feeds our children, it's the land 
On the night of July 15th, 2010, uh, this is how we opened the show. It was a big night. What you are looking at right here is something that we have never seen before. This is the camera on the seafloor at the site of the Deepwater Horizon oil disaster showing that blown out well not spewing oil into the Gulf of Mexico for the first time in 87 days. The first time. For more than three agonizingly long months, residents of the Gulf Coast and people all across the country watched in a state of prolonged horror as hundreds of thousands of gallons of black, sticky, toxic, crude oil flowed into one of this country's most treasured bodies of water, the BP oil spill. As days turned into weeks and then weeks turned into months, we all sat essentially helpless as one of the richest corporations the planet has ever known tried and failed and tried and failed and then tried and failed again to contain, let alone stop, that leak in the Gulf of Mexico. But finally, after 87 long days, the country could at least start to breathe again. The flow of oil had been stopped. That was July 15th. That feeling of momentary relief, that feeling that we could finally exhale, that lasted all of 12 days before here we go again. With the current sensitivity about oil, a spill in Michigan is getting a lot of attention. A leaking pipeline that sent oil into a creek that feeds the Kalamazoo River. And while booms have been deployed, an estimated 848,000 gallons of oil has already escaped. Trails of oil sheen can be seen all the way down the river, far from the bulk of the spill. Less than two weeks after BP finally managed to plug their leaking well in the Gulf of Mexico, it happened again, but instead of, instead of BP this time, it was a Canadian oil company called Enbridge. And instead of watching the people of Louisiana and Mississippi and Florida begin to fear for their own livelihood, now it was the people of Michigan. The Kalamazoo River was in an instant transformed into a sea of oil, a 30-inch pipeline, a big two-and-a-half-foot-wide pipeline that ran beneath the surrounding wetlands, ruptured out of nowhere. It sent oil rushing into the Kalamazoo River. It sent entire Michigan communities into a state of emergency. About 877,000 gallons of oil have spilled out into the creek here near the Kalamazoo River. I spoke with an official with the state, and they say this may be the worst oil spill ever in the Midwest. What happened along the Kalamazoo River in Michigan two years ago would soon become the single most expensive onshore oil spill in U.S. history. And that's because there was one key difference between what happened off the coast of Louisiana what had happened in all other major oil spills, and what happened in Michigan two weeks later. What happened off the Gulf Coast was the sort of spill that we've sadly sort of grown accustomed to dealing with as a country. It was a crude oil spill. We are not very good at cleaning up crude oil, but we at least have a lot of experience trying to do that. What happened in Michigan, however, was not crude oil. It was something called tar sands oil. Tar sands oil that was being transported from Canada. And as it turns out, we have no freaking clue how to clean up tar sands oil when that kind of oil spills. Crude oil generally floats to the top of the water, where at least some of it can be skimmed off. But tar sands oil doesn't do that. Tar sands oil sinks to the bottom of whatever it's in. How do you get oil off the bottom of a riverbed? Good question. Michigan residents saw their once pristine river essentially turn into a test lab for how to even try to clean up tar sands oil spills. The best they could come up with was to literally shake the riverbed, to agitate the riverbed with big machines in order to try to make the oil temporarily rise to the top where they could get at it. Sorry, Michigan, that's all we've got. 
Ultimately, the people who live along the Kalamazoo River did not have to wait one month for the oil company to clean up their mess. They didn't have to wait two months or three months or four months or five months or six months. It took the oil company two years to clean up the mess that they made in Michigan. That oil spill happened in July 2010. It was not until three weeks ago this year that the Kalamazoo River finally reopened to the public. And frankly, it reopened to the public despite the fact that there is still oil submerged beneath that riverbed. So three weeks ago, the good people of Michigan got their river back, significantly worse for wear. And today, today, they got to learn what happened in the first place way back in 2010 on the day that giant spill turned their lives upside down. Today, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, released findings of their investigation into what happened in that spill. They found that the oil company responsible for that pipeline knew about cracks in that particular stretch of pipeline a full five years before the pipe ruptured. Quoting the NTSB, for five years, they did nothing to address the corrosion or cracking at the rupture site. But wait, it gets worse. The investigation also revealed that it took the oil company, this company Enbridge, it took them a good 17 hours before they even realized that one of their own pipes had burst. And in that time, they pumped more than 600,000 gallons of oil through the ruptured pipeline and right into the river. The NTSB also found that Enbridge employees did not have adequate skills to deal with pipeline leaks. They found the company didn't bother making sure that enough resources were in place to respond to a spill like this. And thanks to lax government regulations, Enbridge never had to lay out how exactly they would deal with a worst-case scenario. This accident was a result of multiple mistakes and missteps by Enbridge. Safety is a commitment. It is a requirement. It must be a way of doing business and not just a slogan. If companies can commit to safety with the same vigor that they pursue profits, then we will see integrity management programs with real integrity. If companies commit to safety with the same vigor that they pursue profits, even tautologically possible? Enbridge, uh, for their part, responded today by saying that they met all regulatory standards at the time of the Kalamazoo River oil spill. Think about that for a second. If that's true, if that's not an endorsement for more and better and more aggressive regulation of this particular industry, it is hard to imagine what would be. Look, when used as directed, we can produce a spill like this and it'll take two years to clean it up and we'll have no idea how to do it. This week, the week that we were all reminded once again just how incapable we are of cleaning up oil when it spills, particularly tar sands oil, this week is also the week when we learn that the oil sands industry is launching a big, expensive new PR campaign aimed at convincing you how great tar sands are. Not only how great they are, but how when there's a spill involving oil sands, involving tar sands oil, it's really no big deal. And if you'd care to join us all for a big glassful of the July 2010 Kalamazoo River while we talk that over, maybe you can convince the country of that. Drink the water, drink it down. This time I know I'm bound to spit it back up. I didn't want this so just not going to do I need some help If I'm going to live through this experience Reminds me of a clock that just won't tick I want to wake up Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the activism czar at bestoftheleft.com. 
Two years ago, in July 2010, the largest tar sands oil spill in U.S. history occurred. On the heels of the disastrous BP Gulf of Mexico deepwater spill, it was the Enbridge tar sands pipeline spill into Michigan's Kalamazoo River, the very same tar sands oil that climate change and environmental activists have fought against for years, especially in the wake of the proposed joint Canadian-American Keystone XL tar sands national pipeline. Now, with the recent public release of the NTSB's inquiry, the government has confirmed what many activists and scientists have known for years. Tar sands oil, with its destructive retrieval methodology, coupled with our lack of experience in fully understanding how to clean it up, is destroying the earth. With more than a million gallons of corrosive tar sands spilling into the Kalamazoo River, devastating the river's ecology, even two years later, it is time we come together and say enough. Big oil needs to be accountable for their mistakes, and government needs to step up and introduce into legislation policies that protect the earth. We want clean, renewable energy, instead of benefiting from big-money corporate donors. But we need to bring more awareness to why the tar sands are so dangerous, and why they have the potential, as we saw with Michigan, to destroy the planet. So here's what you can do. Please go to KalamazooSolidarity.org. Here, you can join tar sands activists across North America to draw attention to the dangers of tar sands oil, pipeline safety, and the threats of tar sands pipeline spills. During the week of July 25th, the Tar Sands Action Community will stand in solidarity with the community of Marshall, Michigan, and people along the Kalamazoo River. People across the continent who are threatened with similar spills or are concerned about the dangers of tar sands oil will be staging human oil spills and other actions to raise the red alert about existing or planned tar sands pipelines in their area. Actions are also planned in Maine, Vermont, Connecticut, Quebec, Michigan, Nebraska, Texas, Delaware, and Ontario. Likewise, using this site as a tool to further local and regional awareness, you can also create and post your own event and become part of the coordinated effort. By weaving these actions together, we'll continue to build awareness of the rising groundswell of public concern around tar sands oil pipelines. The time to act is now. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the link in this segment, please see the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. City planners in coastal towns in North Carolina were doing a very rational thing. They were looking at climate change science and compensating for expected sea level rise with the way they built things. But North Carolina lawmakers hated this because they choose not to believe in things like climate change or science or dental hygiene. So they got a brilliant idea akin to the day the inventor of the fanny pack first strapped that purse on his crotch and exclaimed, I've done it! I found a way to carry around all my 
and never get laid. They're not mutually exclusive after all. The North Carolina legislature voted to make it illegal to take climate change into account during city planning. Illegal to even think about it. You egotistical brain Making a certain area of science illegal doesn't actually change the effect of that science. You can legislate that engineers have to ignore gravity. That doesn't mean we can finally build those floating cities we've been pining for. You can make a law demanding people ignore that they live on a fault line. But when the earthquake hits, that doesn't make them any less crushed to death. Or maybe I'm wrong about this and it totally works. In which case, let's hurry up and pass a law saying radiation only affects talk show hosts and birthday cakes because the people of Japan need our help. Elected officials tried a similar banning of reality in Michigan last week. Representative Lisa Brown said the word vagina on the House floor and was then banned from speaking for several days. If they can't handle the word vagina, then how the hell are they going to debate this week's bill clarifying how far exactly the polls are located up the Michigan lawmakers' collective you see, apparently, in Michigan, if you don't see or hear something, it doesn't exist, now or ever. This goes for vaginas, dinosaurs, and Oprah's TV network. Have we become a nation of children? If you're wrong about something, you have to accept it and sulk off and cry in your bowl of grits at the Waffle House. You can't make a law saying you weren't wrong. If you've pissed off 90% of human beings who own vaginas, you have to sit there and take it while the vagina people call you vagina-hating snot satchels. Believe it or not, right and wrong still exist in this world. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes, no matter how much you really, really want to believe that the world's not heating up, it just is. And the planet Earth doesn't give a f whether you pass a law against it. The ocean water will break your law. The vaginas will beat your ban. There's an old maxim, and if it's not an old maxim, it should be. It goes, there are two things you should never pick a fight with. An angry sea and a whole lot of a giant. I'm holding on to what's unfolding and I'm older now. I put my shoulder to the door before it crashes down. This doesn't have to be a labor of intensity to calm the angry sea. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a labor of intensity. It's not too late for me. Sea level rise in North Carolina and Virginia, the state legislatures, which are Republican naturally, have decided that they don't want to hear about sea level rise. They don't want to know about the science. They don't care about the science because what they want is to build as much as possible on these coastlines. So the uh, legislatures in North Carolina, they said, we are not going to allow our Coastal Planning Commission to actually use the word sea level rise in coastal planning documents because that's a liberal code word. And in Virginia, they, and actually well, also in North Carolina, they've actually told their scientists that they're not allowed to use the latest uh, physics and science techniques to calculate what it might be in the future, what sea level rise might be in the future. All right, that's awesome. So first of all, we have the normal Orwellian stuff. You're just not allowed to use certain words. So if the sea levels are rising, don't fix that. Just ban people from saying sea level. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, if ever there was a Republican tactic, 
that describes it perfectly. Like, okay, just, no, I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't hear it. If you don't hear it, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about what's actually happening in the real world. Okay, then the second part of it is something that we had kind of predicted jokingly. I said, you know, look, they're against climate science. Eventually, they'll start to be against other things. I say, oh, and then they're against evolution. They say, that's a theory of evolution. We have other theories, like a theory of gravity. And they're going to be like, ah, gravity. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, I said, they would, this would spread. And they'd have a war on science and a war on math. And, you know, eventually, two plus two is not going to equal four. But in the middle somewhere is physics. And here is, you know, the Republicans saying, Wow, physics tells you that the sea levels are rising. Then screw physics. Okay, you're not allowed to do it. Okay. Well, and they say that this was driven by uh, lobbying from developers who want to have access to that coastline. They want to build it. They want to sell it. They want to get out. And it brings up some very troubling questions about what happens to the people who build there, who don't know that they are in an area that is targeted, predicted by um, our U.S. Geological Survey for having a sea level rise of... Shush, they, don't, don't say sea level. Oh, what are you I'm doing? Sorry, that's right. They, this they, is going to get banned in North Carolina and they Virginia say, now. The, the, the words now are recurrent flooding. So when the recurrent flooding goes up over three feet by the end of this century, that's, that's just going to, instead of it being, you know, recurring, it'll be just permanent recurrent flooding. That's what they want to call it. I see. Day. I was going to say, actually, recurrent flooding sounds worse. I know. <laughs> okay, like, the typical dumbasses that they are, they're like, oh, no, sea level, that's hurting us. Yeah, let's call it recurrent flooding. I got troubles now, but not today, because they're going to wash away. They're going to wash away. Friends all but not today. Sit on washed away. Sit on washed away. It's a sobering anniversary marking the toll of extreme weather disasters. Just hours after the class of 2011 walked across this stage. The most powerful tornado in six decades tore a path of devastation through Joplin that was nearly a mile wide and 13 long. In an inspirational high school commencement ceremony in Joplin, Missouri on Tuesday, President Obama remembered the 161 people killed in last year's record tornado outbreak and how that community has pulled together to rebuild. The rare and deadly F5 tornado, the highest on the scale, hit exactly one year ago Tuesday, part of a record outbreak of tornadoes in a year of record extreme weather disasters. 2011 smashed all records for the highest number of billion-dollar extreme weather disasters in a single year. The record floods on the Mississippi River, Hurricane Irene, record heat waves, drought and wildfires in Texas and the Southwest, and the Joplin tornado may be the reason that finally, polls show a majority of Americans now making the connection between global warming and the rise in extreme weather disasters, just as climate scientists have been predicting for years. Well, that took long enough, didn't it? Unfortunately, yes. But don't tell that to the climate change deniers at the Heartland Institute's Climate Change Denial Conference in Chicago this week. 
Heartland's corporate donors and staff are dumping them in droves after their ill-advised billboard campaign comparing the vast majority of scientists and Americans to serial killer Ted Kaczynski for accepting <laughs> the scientific consensus on climate change. That's what these guys do. That's how desperate these guys are. And I guess it's now beginning to cost them. It is. Heartland admits to losing nearly a million dollars in funding so far. Oh, but don't worry about poor Heartland Institute. ExxonMobil and lobbyists for big coal have <laughs> stepped in to donate funds for their deniers conference. So the fossil fuel industry to the rescue of the climate change deniers. Who could have foreseen that? In other bad news for Heartland Institute, the climate expert who admitted tricking the Institute into giving him internal strategy and propaganda documents last February has been cleared of faking those documents. Peter Gleick, a climate expert who exposed Heartland's climate denier propaganda strategy, has been cleared of forging any and all documents after an independent external investigation conducted by his employer, the nonprofit Pacific Institute. Very interesting, given the plot that was exposed last year, where a plan was being developed for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Bank of America to release forged documents to folks like myself and Glenn Greenwald, and then come out and claim that we were the forgers. This Heartland Institute scheme seems to have worked in almost exactly the same way. And don't forget, Heartland had a plan to teach U.S. kids climate denial and anti-evolution propaganda in the U.S. science curriculum. Yes, that was one of the things that was exposed by Gleick. And you, you had hope for me now I danced all around it somehow As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. Global warming is such a hard issue to wrap our heads around because it's a gradual thing that we don't notice, except maybe when there's a huge flood or a catastrophic hurricane or a dramatic drought or a really hot spell. But it's happening all the time, and we need to respond to it right now because there's not much time left. On Wednesday, the journal Nature published a report entitled Approaching a State Shift in Earth's Biosphere. Not the catchiest title of all time, I'll grant you that, but what the report says is we're not only fast approaching a tipping point, but also once we move beyond it, we may be in for some abrupt and cataclysmic changes rather than a slow boil. It may not take centuries to destroy the quality of life on Earth so much that it becomes virtually uninhabitable. We could notice this trend within just a few generations, said the lead author of the article. He said many of his fellow scientists are no longer pretty worried. Some, he said, are terrified. We only have a small window to curb global warming. Are we going to crawl through that window or are we going to just let the whole place burn down? with our children and grandchildren inside. Those are the questions that confront us as a planet. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. And when the prices rise and sweltering skies reveal lies that turned out lies, 
We'll ask how this could be And where's the culprit whose running theme Of talking green was nothing but a vicious scheme Seductive lies to keep us all in order They sold us dreams of fast machines and glamour queens To worship night and day Saying if you're having a good time everything will be fine If you're having a good time everything will be fine If you're having a good time everything will be fine Saying if you're having a good time everything will be fine if you go to the White House website right now, if you go to whitehouse.gov, you will find a whole section there designed to give you, as an individual citizen, the opportunity to quite literally petition your government. It's petitions.whitehouse.gov. The idea is that any citizen can start a petition about any issue, and if you reach a certain threshold in terms of the numbers of signatures, then the White House will respond to your petition. In September of last year, this petition popped up on this White House website. It says, quote, we petition the Obama administration to protect coal ash recycling by promptly enacting disposal regulations that do not designate coal ash as hazardous waste. Okay. Uh, if you've even heard of coal ash before, it's probably because you remember these pictures. This was the devastating result of an epic coal ash spill that took place in eastern Tennessee back in 2008. More than a billion gallons of sludge buried entire neighborhoods after a coal ash retaining pond there gave way. It was the largest environmental disaster of its kind in U.S. history. Sometime in the wake of that, the EPA proposed a rule to classify coal ash as hazardous waste. It contains stuff like lead and arsenic and mercury, so, yeah. But now this petition has popped up on the White House website that says, no, 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 don't classify coal ash as hazardous waste. That petition racked up more than 5,000 signatures in 30 days. 5,000 signatures in support of coal ash. Uh, and by meeting that threshold, it earned an official response from the White House. It got a response from somebody in the EPA's Office of Solid Waste and Emergency Response. So if you're sitting in the White House or at the EPA, maybe you're thinking, wow, look at all that grassroots, regular folks, man-on-the-street support for coal ash out there. Maybe we ought to rethink this policy. In the unlikely event that you are sitting in the White House thinking that, you have massively underestimated the coal industry. Because as it turns out, page after page of that petition looks something like this. Notice anything weird about that? Hundreds of signatures written in Chinese characters, many of which list Aurora, Colorado as their hometown. Now, are there hundreds of Chinese-speaking residents living in Aurora, Colorado who are supporters of the coal ash industry? Perhaps. But if there are, they are Chinese people living in Aurora, Colorado, who apparently have names like Steamed Bun, and Most Handsome Guy, and China Donkey. A nonpartisan group called the Environmental Integrity Project spotted all of these suspicious signatures. They hired a Mandarin-speaking translator, and they discovered that lots of these purported coal ash supporters had names like Steamed Bun Older Sister, Steamed Bun Little Sister, Small Steamed Bun, Big Steamed Bun, Come to China Big, Come to China Cat, Come to China China, and Come to China Donkey. And maybe there is somebody named Come to China Donkey from Aurora, Colorado, who just happens to be a vigorous supporter of the coal ash industry. But maybe not? Um, it should be noted here that until very recently, the American Coal Ash Association, the lobbying group for coal ash, was headquartered in Aurora, Colorado, which is where all these people named after specific sizes of Chinese buns claim to live. 
It is an executive at the coal ash lobbying group who runs this supposedly grassroots concerned citizens group that put up the petition on the White House website. After Think Progress reported on this fishy steamed bun petition last week and Mother Jones reported on it today, we reached out to the American Coal Ash Association official uh, to ask what's going on here with his group in this petition. He told us, quote, I have no idea how the Chinese signatures made their way onto the White House website. For all I know, some environmental group wanted to embarrass us, could have done it as a prank. Ah, yes, blame the environmentalists. The coal industry um, has a history of doing stuff sort of like this, making it look like there is widespread support for their cause when there really does not seem to be. You may remember back in May when the coal industry was reportedly paying people to pretend they were coal pro-coal activists. They paid people 50 bucks each to wear pro-coal t-shirts at public hearings. In 2009, the coal industry launched a new project called Faces of Coal, remember that? Purporting to be real Americans supporting the coal industry. Those supposedly real people, it turned out, were actually just stock photo people, such as this nice woman working at flower shop. The energy industry is now the most profitable industry in the history of industry. They have unimaginable resources at their disposal. And one of the things they do with their resources is that they have a long history of faking grassroots support, of making it seem like there's more support for their policies than there actually is. They have gone to great lengths, not just to influence American policymaking, but to cover up the extent and the means by which they are influencing American policymaking. And in that context, I would like you to meet Harold Hamm. Harold Hamm is the 36th richest man in America. He is an oil billionaire from Oklahoma. And just a month after Harold Hamm donated nearly a million bucks to the pro-Mitt Romney super PAC for this election, Harold Hamm was named Mitt Romney's top energy advisor. He is chairman of the Mitt Romney campaign's energy policy advisory group. Mr. Hamm advocates that the oil and gas industry should keep getting billions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies. While he's also obviously against subsidies going to non-oil and gas energy companies. It is good to know that somebody like that is the top energy advisor to Mitt Romney. But who, who else, along with Harold Hamm, is advising Mitt Romney on energy policy? We don't know. The Romney campaign will not disclose that. We asked the Romney campaign today who else is on Mr. Romney's energy policy advisory group, and they told us that they are not releasing those names yet. They said they will sure to keep us posted when they do. Unlike every single Republican, excuse me, unlike every single presidential nominee of either party over the last decade, Mr. Romney is also refusing to disclose the names of his campaign bundlers, the people who collect millions of dollars each on his behalf across the country. Everybody else has disclosed their bundlers. Mr. Romney will not. Mr. Romney has reportedly raised $100 million in the last month alone. Combine that with the outside groups on the Republican side that aren't disclosing their donors, and it looks like the Obama campaign will probably be right in their warnings to their supporters that this will be the first year in American history that a sitting president will become the first ever incumbent president to be outspent by his challenger. And we won't be allowed to know by whom. Sorry, it's a secret. And if a person named Steamed Bun Older Sister ends up being one of the other top Romney energy advisors, I will join you in collective despair. Secret heart, what are you made of? What are you so afraid of? Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. 
Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. I am at Netroots Nation 2012 in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, with me is Bill McKibben from 350.org. Uh, Bill, um, first off, you know this was a, a 2012, and uh, or I, I guess really uh, the past year has been uh, quite a, maybe year and a half now, I guess, quite a, a year and a half for the environmental movement. There has been increasing, um, I don't want to say militancy, but uh, increasing uh, aggressive direct action, um, uh, starting with uh, Tim DeChristopher, and, uh, who was the environmental activist who went into a, uh, a uh, mining auction uh, or a land lease, federal land lease auction, and bid up the prices for an auction that was invalid for other reasons anyway, and ended up getting two years in prison, which is a stunning amount of time to be in prison. And let me just say, I got to go visit Tim uh, out in prison about a month ago, and he's doing really well and really strong, and about to have his appeals. Even if he doesn't get uh, win the appeal, he'll be. Uh, uh, on the loose by uh, Christmas time or thereabouts, I think, and we cannot wait to get him back on the outside. He he really is an incredibly um, uh, an admirable figure. I mean, genuinely admirable. He is a good man. He um, uh, you know does uh, a little bit of a tangent, but he also he also rejected money for his own defense fund by a uh, corporation or a company that was outsourcing jo uh, American jobs now. I, w I want to sort of circle back to this in a minute because that is not an environmental concern. Uh, but he is in prison for environmental activism. Uh, but let, well, let's start there, actually. Talk to me about the idea of this environmental activist being so concerned about the idea of jobs for America, uh, 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 of an issue that is, has traditionally been in a different issue silo. I think we're starting to realize uh, that there aren't really different issue silos. Um, it's exactly the same people that we're fighting on every front. So, for instance, we've just come through this disastrous election in Wisconsin. Why did we lose? One reason was that the Koch brothers poured an insane amount of money, I mean, and I'm talking insane amount of money, into that state. Where did the Koch brothers get their money. Well, by gum, what do you know, they're deep, deep, deep in the tar sands of Canada, the place where this pipeline is supposed to come south that we've been fighting for the last year, a pipeline that'll deliver endless amounts of carbon to the atmosphere and endless amounts of money into the pockets of the Koch brothers, which they'll use to take aim at our union brothers and sisters and uh, at everything else that's uh, 
you know, right and proper in this world. We're talking about Keystone XL. And um, but from a tactical standpoint, I mean, because then, uh, and, and we had spoken on, um, uh, on this program and on uh, my other program around the time of uh, Tim DeChristopher's uh, sentencing, I believe it was. And uh, you had suggested to me, and I think that was probably about a year and a half ago, in March or February of last year, uh, that we're going to see more direct action by environmentalists. And then uh, over the course of the summer, late summer, uh, you organized about 1,500 to 2,000 activists to, uh, who were willing to get arrested in Washington. Just uh, remind us of yes, that. Yes, we, we actually... Somewhat to my surprise, since I may, uh, I mean, I may have talked a good game when I was talking with you, but I've never actually organized something quite like this. Working with a lot of other people, we put together what turned into the largest civil disobedience action in 30 years in America. Um, 1,253 people arrested over two weeks outside the White House that took an issue, this Keystone Pipeline, that frankly almost no one had heard of a year ago and made it into a national issue. In fact, such a national issue that Mitt Romney in his um, first TV commercial of the general election last week said, my first task in my first hour in the White House will be to approve the Keystone Pipeline. So, uh, you know, for better or for worse, we at least showed you can take an issue no one's ever heard of and put it someplace close to the middle of the uh, national agenda, not with money, but with our bodies. And um, there was at least a uh, at least a short-term victory uh, on that accord. Temporary victories are, you know, the only kind that environmentalists win. This one may be more temporary than most. The president, uh, the president, did a pretty brave thing. He said, "We're going to delay consideration of this pipeline for a year to take a closer look at it." He did it in the face of the American Petroleum Institute, a.k.a. Big Oil, saying, we will make you pay huge political consequences, quote-unquote. They're doing all that they can. I mean, that Romney adds part of it. So are the hundreds of millions of dollars that various fossil fuel tycoons are pouring into the campaign against the president. Now, i, I got to be honest with you. The president has done some other things that aren't as brave and we've been busily opening up the Powder River Basin to coal mining and the Arctic to oil drilling and things like that. But at least in this case, where citizens actually managed to get their act together to uh, stand up and, and say what was what, uh, we had an administration that was willing to listen. You know, uh, and I want to get your take on this because there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation that is taking place at um, at NetRoots. There's a lot of conversations that are taking place across uh, the uh, across the board following uh, Wisconsin, uh, which I don't think provided anything new uh, to the conversation, but made everything a little bit more urgent. And that is, um, how do we we get more? How can uh, people, via their bodies, via their actions, their protest actions, get more responsiveness out of the administration? And many people have turned to the, um, the marriage equality uh, model, uh, that we've seen much more of that. But I actually think that Keystone, the actions that you've taken at Keystone are far more applicable. I want to get your sense of this because 
At the end of the day, marriage equality does not have big economic implications outside of for those people who are going to have that equality. It has big issues if you're a married couple and you're not getting the same uh, rights as uh, as another married couple. That has big financial issues. But there's issues. not big money in bigotry in this case. No, yeah. and and I think that's why that analogy has not been as apt. But the idea that you could get um, President Obama, even if only briefly, to uh, buck up against huge and powerful economic forces uh, seems to me to be uh, at least there's something prescriptive there. So, Sam, there's two things here. Yeah, one, that's true. Um, it was remarkable to be able to get the, the president and the administration to realize that we were as, as serious as the oil industry was, okay? The second thing, however, is I think what I've learned as much as anything else is we're not going to do this fight against climate change in the end one pipeline at a time. We're going to have to figure out how to get behind the politicians and actually at the fossil fuel industry um, because that's where the money and the influence is coming from. That's why this summer at 350 we're doing this big campaign well, wait, so let's take a break. Yeah, I want sure. to take a break here, and All when right. we come back, I want to talk about how it is that we can sort of have a more global response Absolutely. to what is, a, in how fact, we, how we literally kick the fossil fuel industry in the nuts if we possibly can. Yeah, so to speak. Yeah. All right. No, we're going to take literally, <laughs> so to speak. Well, and we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more from Bill McKibben. We are back. I am talking to Bill McKibben of 350.org. We are at Netroots Nation 2012. And uh, when we broke, Bill, we were talking about the realization that uh, you and others have had in the environmental movement that you cannot, uh, to quote you from just our last segment, uh, you cannot fight global warming and its implications one pipeline at a time, that you must go directly towards the source of the problem. Because in some ways, these pipelines are symptoms. Yes. And there's too many of them. We don't have enough fingers to stick in all the possible dikes, you know, in this case. So the, the, the fight is to get at that incredible special privilege that the fossil fuel industry enjoys, the only industry in the world that's allowed to just throw its waste out for free, okay? That's the biggest subsidy that they have, that they can pour their carbon into the atmosphere and wreck the climate without paying a price. But this summer, what we're working on as a kind of prelude to that, a kind of appetizer, is the direct subsidies that these guys get. Bernie Sanders, my senator, introduced a bill last week, along with Keith Ellison from Minnesota in the House, that will remove $113 billion in direct federal subsidy to the fossil fuel industry over the next decade. Now. What that to make that happen, we're trying to put together for the first time a kind of really technologically empowered citizenry. Uh, we've just launched this scoreboard at 350.org where anybody can go up to their senator or congressman, say, are you in favor of fossil fuel subsidies? They can take 20 seconds of iPhone photo and upload it to this scoreboard. And we're going to, by the time the election comes around, have pinned everybody down because you know what? Nobody. Not Republicans, not independents, like not Democrats, think that there's any reason to be handing over billions of dollars to Exxon. 
even if you like Exxon, they clearly don't need the money, you know. And we're clearly not subsidizing anything because we learned how to burn coal 300 years ago. Right. This is like, you know, giving this someone a scholarship. This is not a technology. It's like giving someone a scholarship to go to college for the 29th time, you know. It's right. It's like, guys, after a certain point, you got to pay for it yourselves, you know. Well, so, okay. So now this is interesting because that, that model reminds me of the one that was organized, the Talking Points Memo, in 2005 when they were fighting the privatization Social of Social Security. Security. Uh, where Very you had um, uh, basically crowdsourcing uh, individuals across the country and putting their representative on record and pinning them down and saying, answer this question, where are you going to be? Because it, 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 it prevents them from being able to sort of dodge that question exactly right. and get buried in a voice vote somewhere. And you know what? If they're not willing to do it, we're going to do our best to shame them. All these guys take money from the fossil fuel industry. If you do that, you should be proud of it. You should be like the NASCAR drivers who wear their allegiance literally on their sleeve. We've got people doctoring up a couple of hundred blue blazers with all the logos of people's sponsors, and we're going to be handing them out. You should go on the floor of the Senate. If you're going to argue for giving people's hard-earned money over to Exxon, you should go on the Senate and say, well, you know what, I, I need to do this because Exxon's giving me money. Now, after you go after the direct subsidies, how do you then go after the, the, the tougher nut to crack, which is to make people understand that we are subsidizing them every time you take your kid down because so, they've got asthma, we're subsidizing them every time um, there's, a, uh, there's a drought somewhere or as the climate is... Uh, this comes, I'm going to be secretive with you. We've got a plan and it unveils the day after the election, literally the night after. Naomi Klein and I and a few others have been hard at work and uh, we're going to do our best to rock the world of the fossil fuel industry. Um, but uh, for the moment, we're going to concentrate through the election on getting rid of these direct subsidies and really making it clear just how complicit the political class is with this kind of, you know, just, just this kind of outright, well, just outright corruption. All right. Well, uh, let's make an agreement to, uh, to make I'm sure there, that we're man. talking the day after the, the day election. After the election, but be, we're there. Okay. And I've got that uh, commitment. We'll put that down. Uh, our producer has, has marked that in the books. But let me just briefly, how will you know, when is that point where uh, the, uh, the direct subsidies, that you will know if you've achieved that? Is that uh, in, in, in the context of the budget or uh, fight? No, or? it'll, t I mean, hopefully we can force a vote in the House or the Senate. I, I don't know whether we can in the House, maybe not, in the Senate, maybe so, uh, to really take this on and at least get people on record so we know. I mean, that's, you know, what else are you going to do? We can be stronger than bombs if you're singing along and you know that you really believe. We can be richer than industry as long as we know that there's things that we don't really need we can speak louder than ignorance because we speak in silence every time our eyes meet on and on and on it goes the world it just keeps spinning until i'm dizzy time to breathe so close my eyes and start again
It's official. We have just experienced the hottest 12-month stretch on record in the U.S., and January to April 2012 is now officially the hottest January through April on record in the U.S. If this trend continues, 2012 is shaping up to be the hottest year on record globally. That's according to the National Climatic Data Center on Monday. They say that the odds of this 12-month stretch randomly occurring in any given month is 1 in 1.6 million. The heat has buckled high Ways, warped railroad tracks, and even a plane at D.C.'s Reagan National Airport got stuck, sinking into the runway when the asphalt softened like butter. <laughs> this heat wave shattered many all-time high-temperature records throughout the U.S. Not just, hey, this is a new record for July, but hey, these are all-time highest temperatures ever recorded for these towns, ranging from Minnesota to Georgia, even breaking records that were set during the extended record drought of the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Or as old man George Will would say, One word, summer. We're having some hot weather. Get over it. Yeah, and corn growers think that's just really funny. Corn growers in hell was the headline from Bloomberg News. If the heat and dry weather continue, can't pull enough moisture out of the ground, and all these kernels will just die. Unless we get some water soon, what's going to happen? Oh, we could lose easily 40%. It was supposed to be a record corn crop this year, but Iowa farmers, as you just heard, now predict up to 40% of the U.S. corn crop could be lost nationwide due to the heat and drought. Parts of Iowa haven't seen significant rain since April. That's going to result in higher food prices for anything that uses corn, like cattle feed or the high fructose corn syrup that exists in most processed foods. It's having an effect on public opinion polls, too, which are finally showing ever higher numbers of Americans now agree with the scientific consensus on climate change, as more and more of them are directly affected by extreme weather events. That's despite the fact that most media outlets have ignored the relationship between global warming and extreme weather. Only 3% of broadcast reports mentioned it, according to a new study by MediaMatters.org. One of the few to mention it, PBS NewsHour, who even talked to an actual climate scientist. Kevin Trenbert of the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Breaking records is not an indication of climate change, but breaking records at a rate of 10 to 1 versus the cold records, that's a clear indication of climate change. But humans will simply adapt to all of this unpleasant climate change, says the CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson. In a recent appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations, Tillerson acknowledged the scientific evidence of global warming, that greenhouse gas emissions from burning ExxonMobil's oil is causing the planet to warm, but he says it's simply a, quote, engineering problem. So I'm not disputing that Increasing CO2 emissions in the atmosphere is going to have an impact. It'll have a warming impact. We believe those consequences are manageable. As a species, we have spent our entire existence adapting. Changes to weather patterns that move crop production areas around, we'll adapt to that. It's an engineering problem, and it has engineering solutions. And so I don't, the fear factor that people want to throw out there to say, we just have to stop this. I do not accept. Got it. So he admits it's a huge problem, just doesn't think we ought to do anything about it other than some sort of magic engineering. I understand from watching television that uh, the country happens to be uh, kind of on fire. 
Uh, pretty hot throughout the country. I'm going to have very specific numbers for you in a second, but let's watch the news coverage right now. We begin with the heat wave that's burning up so much of the country. The National Weather Service calls the heat historic. It's an epic heat wave. An intense heat so severe. We were on pace with the temperatures that were in Saudi Arabia and deserts all over the country with some of the hottest temperatures in the world. Some of the hottest temperatures in the world. We're on fire. It's epic. You know that there's a phenomenon called global warming? Could that be a part of it? No, no, no. Almost none of the news reports, in fact, literally none of the news reports in this cycle, because uh, we tracked it, have mentioned global warming at all. And if they ever do mention it, they'll have an expert on and they'll say, well, <laughs> some are theorizing this thing called climate change. And otherwise, and other people obviously think this has absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, so I've done my balance. Now, here's what we do on this program. We bring you facts. Not because one weather event or even a stretch of weather doesn't necessarily mean anything about overall climate change. You can have terrible snowstorms, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have climate change. You could have terrible droughts and fires as we do now, and it doesn't necessarily mean climate change. So let's look at the numbers. First of all, um, how many daily high temperature records were set in just in the month of June? Well, that'd be only 3,215. Now that seems like a pretty high number. I'm going to put it to you in context in just a second. Well, how about so far this year in terms of acres burned in wildfires? How about 2.1 million acres burned? Now, to put that in context, they did a study between 1970 and 2003. The amount of wildfires, land consumed by wildfires, has gone up six and a half times. So now that since 1970, in that case, the latest numbers were from 2003, and since then it's gotten even worse, obviously, and today, uh, it's even breaking more and more records as we speak. So uh, the wildfires are increasing at a significant pace. The heat is uh, going up at a significant pace. In fact, now some of the top climate scientists are saying, yeah, this is exactly what we warned you about. We're in the middle of climate change. It's not something that's going to happen down the road. It's happening right now. So uh, let me quote one for you. Jonathan Overpeck, he's a professor of geoscience uh, and atmospheric science at the University of Arizona. He says, quote, this is what global warming looks like at the regional or personal level. The extra heat increases the odds of worse heat waves, droughts, storms, and wildfire. This is certainly what I and many other climate scientists have been warning about. The part of that quote that I really like is the very beginning where he says, this is what global warming looks like. And we're seeing it all across the country. Obviously, it's not just this latest stretch. You had all the record-breaking temperatures in Chicago in March all over the country and right now it's in Atlanta, Nashville, Raleigh and the list goes on and on. Now here's another uh, geoscientist and that's uh, Princeton University professor uh, Michael Oppenheimer and he says quote what we're seeing really is a window into what global warming really looks like. It looks like heat, it looks like fires, it looks like this kind of environmental disasters. Now I said okay now that's the guys who are predicting this so of course, they're going to say that we're in the middle of this. Well, they predicted it based on the numbers, and the numbers do back them up. I don't want you to get confused about that. But look, let's take it in context, right? So we have all these records. But it turns out, you know, every year we break a lot of records for cold days and hot days. So, for example, you might break a record in Iowa for a cold day, you might break a record for heat in uh, Georgia. So that happens all the time. In fact, 
in the last century, the number of cold records and heat records were even. So you didn't really particularly see a trend in that category, right? Well, in the last decade, okay, the, so the first decade of this century, that number moved to two to one more heat records as opposed to cold records. Well, how are we doing right now? Well, so far uh, this year, and we're only about through half the year, obviously, well, it turns out we've actually broken 6,000 cold records. So that's a lot of cold temperature records to break. Jeez, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep up with that on the heat side. I do know. 40,000 hot temperature records throughout the country in half a year alone. So now our ratio is nearly 7 to 1. Is global warming happening? So the numbers certainly look like it. Now look, this is macro stuff. So whenever you see a micro event like this, and it doesn't have to be just over a couple of days, it could even be over a couple of years and it could swing back and then things could even out. So that's what everybody always says, especially the guys who do the global warming deny. But we've shown you graph after graph on this show in the past. Temperatures rising, every indication rising, the number of extreme weather events through the roof compared to the past. And now you see these hot temperature records, which then of course lead to wildfires, etc. And when you look at it, all of it in its context and in its entirety, I got news for you. We're in the middle of climate change. It's not something that's going to happen later. It's happening right now. So when you turn on your local news and they show you the fires and they show the record-breaking heat, you're looking at global warming. This is Jesse calling from Australia, a small Pacific outpost of the Empire. I just wanted to weigh in on the height discussion. I'm a social psychologist and I think it's really important to let you and your listeners know that despite his mainstream appeal, which should already make us suspicious, his ideas are very contentious in the field and in my opinion, uh, they're deeply flawed. He talks about how American politics has become morally divided so no one can work together anymore. And he says the first step is to acknowledge that the other side isn't crazy or racist or being bribed. Now, the Republican Party is beholden to extremist free market economic ideology and Christian fundamentalist morality. I think it's pretty reasonable to call that crazy. And what do you call giving legislators money so they vote for your bills, if not bribing? And let's face it, Democrats can't compete with the Republicans on that front anymore. And over and over again, racism is linked to conservatism in social psych studies. But we don't need these studies to know that the right is more racist than the left. And Height knows this too. I just can't imagine what he's thinking if he says that many Republican policies aren't fueled by and appealing to racism. So he says that our political views are driven by different ideas of what justice is. For progressives, it's equality, and for conservatives, it's deservingness, getting out according to what you put in. But the crucial question is, why do these different versions of justice appeal to different people? And there are two responses to injustice. You can fight it, which means questioning the legitimacy of your society, or you can justify it. And we know the Conservatives have a deeply held need to see their system as fair and just. So they are forced to blame the victim and latch onto this idea of deservingness, or the Protestant work ethic, or the rags to riches mythology. So their attitudes aren't driven by their commitment to justice. Their commitment to this version of justice is a way for them to rationalise away the obvious failings of their cherished social system. 
I mean, he's essentially defending those people who yelled out, let him die. And that's where you end up when you treat different moral orientations and ideologies as equally valid. Hart likes to tell the fact that he had this miraculous conversion from liberalism to centrism and that this inspired these theories. He claims to be non-ideological, but as we know, anyone who claims that is just going to be reflecting and perpetuating the dominant ideology, which is exactly what he does. Come on, let's all get together and talk it out. And meanwhile, conservative forces are openly staging a corporate coup d'etat in America, and the rest of us are going to be dragged out with you. So to really understand what drives conservatives, Google conservatism motivated. That's conservatism motivated. And the top hit is an important and influential paper by Professor John Jost, that's J-O-S-T, and his colleagues, where some of these ideas and a whole lot more is laid out in a really clear and accessible way. And that specific paper led to a Republican representative calling for changing the way academic research is funded, so they must have done something right. It's definitely a great antidote to Hyatt's vapid moral universalism. Okay, I hope you found some of that interesting. Thanks, man. Keep up the amazing work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So this is a really interesting conversation that I definitely want to keep going. Uh, There will be more voicemails uh, about it. I may have something to say about it in upcoming episodes. But today, I want to highlight for you guys uh, what made my day today. And so to tell this story, I have to go back and play a bit of a voicemail that's never been played on the show before. This came in a couple of weeks ago from a conservative. This is Wade in Texas. And and he called in. He said, look, I'm a conservative. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I try to keep an open mind. I try to listen to the show and get the other side. I don't think that everything Democrats do is crazy or, or, or terrible. I actually support a lot of what they do. But there's some things that you guys seem to believe that are so far out there that I can't support it. And and that's why I could never be a Democrat. And so one of the issues that he wanted to bring up was about, about the conversation of privilege. And that's been happening a lot on this show. There's been a lot of conversation about white or straight or male or able-bodied or neurotypical privilege, all of these things. And so Wade called in to comment about it. This didn't get played on the show, uh, but this is how this story is going to start. So uh, hear what Wade had to say. The whole white male privilege thing killed me. You know, I am a straight white male, and I guess therefore born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Somebody forgot to tell me, though. I realize that every other race seems to be perfect. I mean, blacks didn't sell other blacks into slavery. What do they call it? The Hutus didn't kill the Tutsis in Rwanda. Africa's just a bastion of freedom and democracy and great place to live. White people had nothing to do with building of America winning the Civil War, freeing slaves. No white man had any part of that. If you're going to tell me that I have privilege, at least, I don't know, think about the contributions my race has made you know, to good things. That would be appreciated. So I think you can probably see why I didn't think that that would have been a particularly constructive addition to the conversation. Of course, people would have just gotten mad and called in and yelled at him, and that wouldn't have really helped anyone. But that voicemail was the inspiration for a commentary that I did that I was pretty excited about and proud of, in which I was trying to reimagine how to talk about privilege in such a way as to reach people like Wade. Because rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly, uh, Wade and a lot of other people like him react very, very negatively to the whole concept of privilege and the way it's phrased, white or straight or male privilege. It, it, it sounds like a personal attack to them. 
And so their defenses go up. And so once the defenses are up, you can't really have a good conversation. And so I'll play a, just a short clip of the commentary I did trying to figure out a way around those defensive reactions to get to the heart of the matter. To do this, let's discard all of those specifiers, white, straight, male, whatever, discard the specifiers that personalizes it too much. But think of it this way. Think of it as majority privilege or possibly dominant privilege. So don't think about it, about it with a, you know, a specific element in mind. Just think back to like high school. What group of people were the majority in high school? And do you see that you know, they had it easier in school than the minority kids who you know, got picked on because they were different? That is the concept we're talking about. And so when you extrapolate to the rest of the real world, just think about whatever context there is and think about the general perceptions in the world and the general effects that those have. And so in America, in 2012, white privilege exists because white people are the majority and male privilege exists because men are dominant. So that's what I said a couple of weeks ago. Now are you ready for this? Wade called back. Hey Jay, this is Wade from Fort Worth. Uh, just listened to your episode where you described or better described how to explain white male privilege. And I gotta say, and I'm a conservative by the way, that uh, that does make sense. Makes it easier to accept. It's a little bit better than saying straight white male privilege because immediately that gets my defenses up and quite frankly pisses me off. But if you put it that way, I can kind of understand what you're saying. It's, it's far less offensive and it, well, it doesn't make me want to get angry. So, mission accomplished on that one. I definitely... Uh, still hold some reservations about it. Uh, it's, it's a touchy subject, probably there's always going to be one, but at least you're trying to, to uh, ex have a better way to explain the topic without being so offensive to <laughs> the majority of America, I guess you could say, since we are the majority. But again, uh, I, I still have, have, have issues with it. I know it's been we've been beating it to death on this show, but and I do appreciate everything that you've done with it. It's like I said, I'm, I keep an open mind. I try to hear both sides of, of the conversation, but that's one subject that I, I don't think that I would ever fully be a part of, or, or excuse me, fully agree with anybody on. But good job at at least opening my eyes to a new way. I got to hand it to you. That was pretty good. So just wanted to say that. Hey, uh, thanks for the show. It's really entertaining. Uh, and I love the new ideas that I get. So appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Later. So I will grant to you that this definitely only qualifies as a small victory. But I have to say how incredibly excited I was to get this voicemail. I, you know, I was listening to it today. And once I figured out what he was saying, I, I was getting up out of my chair and fist pumping the air and do not think for a moment that I am kidding or exaggerating. I literally did that because even though I have no idea if that commentary I did had any effect on anyone else who heard it, 
to hear from Wade to say that his perspective had been changed so widely. For, and I mean, you heard what he said before and after. And it's not that his perspective was changed completely, but the way he understands the conversation on privilege seems fundamentally altered by the fact that I figured out a way to say what I'd been saying over and over again in a new way that actually that just made sense and and was able to get through and literally like nothing has made me prouder in weeks or months uh, than knowing that I figured something out that actually worked for someone and and to know that essentially every conversation on privilege he hears for the rest of his life is going to be heard through a new filter because of a breakthrough in communication like that is what I talk about over and over and over again is the importance of, of communication and making sure we're saying exactly what we mean and trying to make sure as best as we can that the people we're talking to are understanding us and are understanding what we're saying in the way we meant it and not in some twisted, altered way. And so I just have to say how incredibly gratifying it was to get this voicemail and, and how clearly it was something that I needed to share. So that is what made my day today. So thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is absolutely how the show survives. Uh, but of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips that you particularly like through your social networks. That can be done through the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Thought it's now black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.